This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Hello, hello, hello. How are everybody? How are everybody? Can you dig it? I can. It is very, very fucking early. It is 4.26 a.m. on a Wednesday when I am recording this, and I am a little crunched for time this week, but that is okay. We are making do. It's been kind of wild, kind of hectic. It has been kind of crazy. There's been a lot of stuff going on in my life, which is both good and both bad, because this is the part of my year where I think everything is kind of coming to an apex. So there's just everything's going at 100 miles an hour every single day, every single hour, every single whatever, with a lot of different stuff wrapping up the year, last quarter of the year, kind of pushing through everything else, not in like a sales douchey Q4 mindset, but just kind of, I got to get shit done. And that is really kind of pressed me for time, which is why I am now recording podcast at four, now 427 AM on a Wednesday morning. But it's all worth it because I think this podcast is really, really cool. So what's cool about this podcast is it's it's one that I've wanted to talk about for a while. I just really haven't gotten an opportunity to really frame it in a way that I think is really applicable to a lot of people. And the interesting thing is that I got an opportunity to kind of test the waters about this kind of pod, podcast post subject when I did a presentation for my men's group later uh, earlier this week, excuse me. And it went over very well because I think a lot of people are interested in the topic of salesmanship and I wanted to kind of frame it, not again, not in a sales douchey type of way, like I said with the Q4 stuff, but I wanted to frame it in terms of a psychological effect that it has on people because I think a lot of people have a misconception about the industry, about the mindset that goes into the industry and I thought it would be really cool to talk about and when I framed it in and I kind of, you know, threw in some nuances and stuff that I thought about that I thought were important to highlight. And it ended up, I think, working out pretty well in my estimation. So I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to kind of get into and talk about it. The guys in my group loved it. Shout out to the guys in the Affluent Standard. And they all thought it was of a lot of value. They all kind of thought that, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, blatantly absurd or, you know, insane or whatever when I was talking about it, which is a good thing. It's always a good thing when that happens. And I think without further ado, I want to just kind of bring it to you and see what the broader masses are thinking about all of my stuff. So without further ado, and without that be or with that being said, excuse me, here we go at now 4.29 a.m. on a Wednesday. <laughs> There's a lot of talk in our current culture about people being, quote, fake, that people never show you who they really are. 
that the only put up a front in a simplistic tactic of getting what they want. And to this point, there's a lot of merit to this. There are certainly many different types of people who deceive and manipulate to get whatever it is that they want. However, there's also more nuance to it. It's not that simple. In a lot of ways, we all do this. We're hardly ever transparent with somebody. It takes many years of knowledge gathering and self-awareness to reach a comfort level with someone where we can create that type of a bond. It is the people that understand this the best that can transcend that level of deception and manipulation. And one of the best examples of this very phenomenon can give us a great look inside into how both prevalent and powerful it really is. Colby Covington is a current contender in the welterweight division in the UFC. Growing up a phenomenal but troubled wrestler in a small town in Oregon, Covington started out as, at a junior college in Iowa due to poor academic performance. His roommate at that university was John Jones, who many have called the greatest mixed martial artist in history. After transferring to Iowa, getting kicked out for drunk driving, and then transferring again, he became an All-American in Oregon State and later won a gold medal at the 2013 Fila Nogi Grappling Championship. After these victories, Covington was recruited by American top team head coach Dan Lambert to come to the world-renowned gym in Florida to improve their wrestling talent. A year afterwards, Colby Covington signed a contract with the UFC and began to work his way up the rankings. He proved to everyone that he belonged in the promotion, racking up a perfect 8-0 record in his first 18 eight fights and 12 fights out of his first 13 were wins. Now normally when this happens, the UFC begins to salivate at the potential of a young fighter and do everything they can to elevate and make money off of them. But strangely, this was not the case for Covington. The reasoning was his style of fighting. Even though there are plenty of fans in grappling and the rest wrestling in the world, it's far from the sexiest way to win a fight. As the old saying goes, people love a knockout. And Colby Covington hardly knocked anybody out. He dominated nearly everyone he thought by squeezing the life out of them, but he lacked a certain pizzazz that UFC President Dana White is notorious for desiring in superstar athletes. Covington barely talked, went about his work, and won fights. Eventually, White had enough with Covington's non-antics and informed American top team that they planned to cut him after his last fight of his contract in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where he was scheduled to face native Brazilian UFC legend and top-ranked welterweight Damian Maia. The only way Covington could save himself was if he did something spectacular. On that now infamous night in Sao Paulo, Covington did what he always did, mauled his opponent. After beating the shit out of Maya for three rounds in front of his home crowd and leaving him, quote, in a pool of his own blood, the Brazilian fans booed him loudly as commentator and also UFC legend Daniel Cormier, who has a great relationship with Covington, came to interview him. When DC asked him about his performance, Covington finally did what Dana White had always wanted him to do. Entertain. Quote, Brazil, you're a dump. All you filthy animals suck. End quote. As Covington continued to unload, the arena exploded. As Covington and his team left for the locker room, the fans threw things at them and screamed death threats. And afterwards, security was called in to escort them immediately out of Brazil. The death threats, it turned out, were more real than they initially thought. After that fateful night, a switch was flipped inside of Covington's head. Dubbing himself the new supervillain of the UFC, Covington's public perception totally flipped. He came out as an outspoken supporter of the Republican Party and Donald Trump, hosting his two sons and Candace Owens ringside at his fights. He began to talk shit to anyone and everyone who crossed him, going so far as to make fun of accidents, injuries, and their families. 
He started wearing fancy and flashy jewelry and suits. He began hanging out with Instagram models and porn stars. He eventually picked fights with so many people at his gym, including Dustin Poirier and Robbie Lawler, that he made his own gym to keep up with his own level of branding. However, the most interesting part about Colby Covington, the part that almost no one talks about, is this. He's not actually this person. Cameron Haynes, the greatest bow hunter and one of the greatest endurance athletes in the world, is friends with Covington and has worked out with him regularly. According to Haynes, Joe Rogan, Daniel Cormier, and several other insiders, Colby Covington is far from who he projects himself to be. It's all for show. It's an act. It's not real. So, if it's not real, if it is all an act, then why do it? The reason why Colby Covington does it is because he knows the art of salesmanship. He knows the very baseline definition of sales. Getting someone to do something or give something to you that you want. If Colby Covington is nothing else, he's an excellent salesman. His pitch is all about presentation. And that presentation, that pitch, has gotten him everything. Because of it, he's become one of the most entertaining fighters in the UFC roster, has seen his celebrity skyrocket, racked up tons of cash, and has some of the most beautiful women in the world at his fingertips. Now, of course, this is obviously an exaggeration. Not everyone could be or should be desiring to be like Colby Covington. We all probably have a lot more fistfights and STDs if that were the case. However, to say that we are not to some degree like Colby Covington is a flat-out lie. To live in denial of the fact that we don't engage in some partial element of salesmanship that makes up Colby Covington's rise is ignorance at its finest. Chris Voss, the author of Never Split the Difference, has a saying that claims, quote, everything is a negotiation. And he's partially right. What I would amend Voss's saying to be is that, quote, everything is a sale. Instead of the whole world being a stage, as another saying asserts, the whole world is actually a sale. In every facet of life, no matter where you look, every person is selling something. It's as ubiquitous to life as breathing when you choose to look at it as such. And some of you may be reading this might be in disagreement. You might claim that, since most people are not salesmen for a living, that this is a very broad generalization. What I would say to this person is to have an open mind. Look at it through the lens that I will soon explain, and you will begin to see the light. As a preview, let's expand on the Covington methodology to make it more personal to whomever might be reading this post. We all want to present something to the world. And why? Well, because we want people to perceive us one way or another. So how would we like to be perceived? That is the question that we all must ask ourselves internally. It is the essential element as to how we interact with people. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you wear those clothes, talk with that tone of voice, interact with that group of people? In short, what are you attempting to gain out of the way you present yourself to others and to the world? That is the key question of all people and of all sellers. That is, all of us. What do you want? Attention, a relationship, money? Think through your interactions with people and analyze yourself. Be honest and forthright about how you really go about your interactions in the world. And more importantly, be honest and forthright with yourself that how you present yourself might not actually be real. You might not be as attractive, as confident, or whatever as your presentation might argue, otherwise argue. But, this is how most successful people in all fields get to the top of all industries. The whole world, when you really break it down, is made up of people selling something. To put it how the late, great Steve Jobs did, it's a reality distortion field. 
It's a house of mirrors, a mirage in the distance, an optical illusion. The bestsellers not only get people to see what they want them to see, but act how they want them to act. Those who are great seller, who are, who are great sellers, excuse me, get further down this path towards getting what they want faster and in more abundance. Those who are unable to grasp the reality of salesmanship in all areas of the world are usually left behind. And let me make something absolutely clear. This is not about deception. It is not about lying to people. It is not about coercing them to do something malicious. Great selling is about presentation, particularly with yourself and your everyday environment. You will have your faults. Whatever you're selling will have its faults. Whatever you're trying to obtain from your selling efforts will have its faults. But I would argue, despite all of this, that salesmanship is the most essential skill for having a good quality of life that you can hope to attain. Sales is all about effort. It's all about hard work. It's all about presenting a better reality for yourself and those who would like to enter into it. To create that reality, you must have a strong foundation of salesmanship. To have a strong foundation of salesmanship, you must grasp the reality that the whole world is a sale. To pr both prove this and act successfully within it, we must first start with understanding what I have dubbed the salesman fallacy. Second, we will discuss how, upon understanding it in depth, to operate the salesman fallacy in the world. And lastly, we will see what can come out of its proper implementation by using a relevant example that I have personally seen implemented in a really unique way in my personal life. And for those who came to this post expecting coke and hookers, blame Matthew McConaughey, not me. Even though Matthew McConaughey probably does not do the whole coke and hookers thing in real life, it's, uh, I don't know, I like to think it's, um, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see. I don't know, I don't think he does, but we'll see. I wonder if he does, actually, that'd be interesting. Mad Men is a great television show. In an era of great television shows, it has separated itself as truly elite from the rest of the pack. There is a reason why so many people enjoy it and recommend it to their friends, even though the concept itself is far from exciting. The ability of Matthew Weiner and the crew of the show to make working in an advertising firm one of the most riveting storylines ever, ever to hit living rooms is nothing short of amazing. So, the question we should all be asking is, what exactly makes Mad Men so great? And to me, the two biggest things that separate the good shows from the great shows are character development and dialogue. And the interesting thing about this formula in relation to Mad Men is that the lead character of the show, Don Draper, has the least amount of change within him of almost every leading man I've ever seen on television. There is, quite literally, no difference between Don Draper in the first episode versus Don Draper in the season finale, or the series finale, rather. He remains the same chauvinistic and narcissistic person in the fictional year of 1960 than in the fictional year of 1970, the entire lifespan of the show. But what makes Don Draper so irresistible to women and so desirable to men is his dialogue. Throughout the show, John Hamm's delivery and dropping gem after gem in dialogue was nothing short of incredible. There was an allure to the way he said things, a certain sexy sultriness that made the words drip out of his mouth and had people cupping their hands underneath to catch every last one. In a show filled with Romantic-era undertones, this is the greatest illusion of that nuance by a mile. My personal favorite quote from Don Draper was said in the series premiere, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Don Draper was said in the series, or named after the fateful meeting with a cigarette manufacturer during the tobacco health scare of the 1960s, Don relaxes for the evening while going to dinner with another client, the beautiful Rachel Mencken, who runs a chain of successful New York department stores. 
After initially getting off to a rough start due to Mencken's tough nature and Draper's sexiest demeanor, the two begin to bond over the nuances of allure, business, and power. The conversation eventually turns to the subject of happiness, the theme that Don eventually settles on his pitch to the cigarette company. Draper, obvious to the viewer that he's merely using Mencken to develop his campaign, asks her whether or not she is happy being a woman running a large business instead of having a family and raising children. She replies that business is what gives her excitement in her life and that she has never been in love, theoretically giving her no purpose to give up that excitement. Upon her stepping on that verbal landmine, Draper pounces, quote, The reason you haven't felt it is because it doesn't exist. What you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. You're born alone and you die alone, and this world just drops a bunch of rules on top of you to make you forget those facts. But I never forget. I'm living like there's no tomorrow, because there isn't one. End quote. That quote, the greatest quote in a show filled with great quotes, explains everything you need to know about the most important industry in the world. Sales. Sales, and everything around sales, including advertising and marketing, Draper's business, is not contrary to popular belief about, quote, selling anything. In fact, selling is the opposite of what great sellers, like Draper, do. Instead, the universe of sales revolves around one singular concept. Presenting an alternative reality. Enter the salesman fallacy. Throughout history, there have been two ways of making people do what you want. The first way is through the use of force. Forcing people to do things you want is a remarkably effective way to get people to do things they otherwise wouldn't do, even though it's a malicious way of doing so. The downside to using force, obviously, is that, most of the time, people will hate you and resent you for violating their sovereignty and making them weak at the behest of your strength. This timeline stretches all the way back from when the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians to our current environment of petulant young workers refusing to go to the office a couple times a week to work their jobs. You can get people to do the things you want them to do by force, certainly. But in that scenario, you will likely have hostages, not customers. The second way to get someone to do what you want is to present them a vision that is different from the one that they are currently perceiving. People, whether they like to admit it or not, are very quick to jump to conclusions or judgments on various things ranging from different ideas and perspectives to the way that someone looks, and Colby Covington is a massive proof of this. When hit directly in the face with something new, the people that receive that hit are likely to feel pressured or forced similar to what we saw in Tactic 1. The key then for this demographic is to hit people in the face without them knowing that you are doing so. And the way this is done is not by hitting them directly, but by hitting them adjacently. Instead of dictating to the person you are trying to influence, you give them the opportunity to dictate to you. By taking your hands off the wheel and letting your influencee's imagination run wild, you give them the autonomy that every human being desires in every domain of their lives. And it's amazing what happens when someone begins to grasp a hold of this idea, or an idea in general. In a sales scenario, whether you're selling life insurance or the new dress you bought for date night, you can sense this right away. Your customer, whomever that might be, begins to light up. They get excited. They sense that they have control, or at least sense that they have it. You can see the wheels begin to turn in their head. The treadmill that is their brain begins to ramp up to increasingly fast speeds. The reason why the method of presenting an alternative reality to your customer is so appealing is because of the simplicity. There is hardly anything you have to do other than step into that vision and begin to explore. There is very little work or convincing. The whole thing is mapped out for them. 
If you are able to draw a useful and successful map, all you have to do from there is open the door and allow them to walk through. The salesman fallacy, therefore, is this. Most sellers and people think of sales as an act of force. They think that if they just push hard enough, if they just give that extra dose of effort, if they just do one more demo, have one more discovery call, if they just throw as many pricing adjustments as their customer as possible, then the customer will eventually be persuaded. They will eventually have to come to Jesus moment where they will, quote, see the light and come to a turning point after you've beaten down their door and gotten them to buy into whatever took you all that blood, sweat, and tears to get them to that point in the first place. This is incorrect. I said earlier in the post that sales is about effort and hard work, and I stand by that statement. However, that effort and hard work that I referenced must be applied in the proper forms and places within a selling engagement, whether that is in business or out, for it to have the desired outcomes that all of us sellers want, which is getting what we want. So what are those proper forms and where are those proper places? For the good seller, the proper form is in the preparation for the pitch and the proper place is in the initial presentation of the pitch. As the great and powerful Tim Kennedy is prone to saying, an ounce of preparation prevents a pound of cure. When you focus all of your energy on how you want to frame the alternative reality to the customer and practicing how to show it to them, you will be amazed at how little work you will have to do once they step into the matrix. For the bad seller, the proper form is convincing throughout the sales cycle, and the proper place is after the pitch takes place. These people, the majority of sellers and those who try to sell, usually don't put that much effort in the initial layout and spend the remainder of the duration of the sales cycle playing catch-up. They most likely believe that they have more persuasion power than they actually do, and spend the entire time with their customer attempting to reel them in through force and manipulation. As a person who has been sold to in various ways millions of the major and minor times, you already know internally which is the proper way to sell and which to be sold to. No one, including you, wants to feel forced into doing anything. You want to feel a sense of dominion about your decision and how to choose to go about making it. You're probably open to help, but you want to be the one that feels their hands gripping the wheel, particularly when the curve gets sharper and the roads bumpier. The proper understanding of the salesman fallacy is, in my estimation, the key between good sellers and shitty sellers. To further paint this picture, let's use a boxing analogy. Throughout the long and luxurious history in the sport of boxing, there have generally been two styles of fighters, boxers and brawlers. Boxers use footwork, head movement, and punch placement to score points and score occasional haymaking shots to win fights. Fighters like Floyd Mayweather, Muhammad Ali, and Tyson Fury are examples of this style. In movie terms, think Apollo Creed. Brawlers use brute force, forward pressure, and ungodly strength to invade their opponent's space, throw them off their game, and bludgeon them into submission. Fighters like George Foreman, Mike Tyson, and Deontay Wilder are examples of this style. In movie terms, think Clubber Lang. Even though all six fighters, and two, the two fictional ones, were dominant champions and excellent athletes, it is the boxers that, rely on their, that can rely on their style excuse me, more for longevity and success as proven by the track record of all fighters named and the styles themselves. Technique, once properly taught, sticks with you for a long time. Steph Curry will be hitting three-pointers in his 70s. LeBron James will not be dunking in his 70s. In a similar vein, speed, strength, and velocity eventually wane. Accuracy, distance management, and footwork tend to stay with you for a long time. 
Good sellers, those who properly understand the salesman fallacy, are boxers. They're able to bob and weave as the engagement goes on. The work they do is mostly in the preparation. They can make adjustments on the fly. They don't have to fight the entire time because most of their fighting happens before they even step one foot inside the ring. Their style of fighting is beautiful and elegant, which will lead to appreciation from both their opponents and the people watching them. The bad sellers, those who don't properly understand the salesman fallacy, are brawlers. They tend to steamroll and street fight their way through the engagement. They have to fight the entire time. They're usually burned out much quicker than their boxer opponents because all their effort is expended during the fight and sales cycle, not before. Their style of fighting is rough and thuggish, which will lead to abrasive acceptance and lots of resistance from both their opponents and their fans. The salesman fallacy can be distilled down to one question. Are you guiding or are you bullying? If you're self-aware, you should easily be able to tell. Do your customers enjoy doing business with you and hopping on calls? Or do they avoid it? Do they feel pressured or do they willingly engage? Are people happy when you walk into the room? Or does attention fill the air? The key to effective and proper salesmanship, then, is in the usage, like all other skills. So, how should we be effectively and properly applying the salesman fallacy to our selling engagements? The salesman fallacy might seem like a new concept. I did, indeed, make it up just for this podcast, as it turns out. But its effects are everywhere, just as sales is everywhere. Framing our world in this new context, we should be able to see more and more concrete examples of it in our daily lives as we move forward, attempting to become more active sellers and sellees. But due to the very skewed ratio of bad sellers to good sellers we have in the world, there lies a problem with seeing a very good concrete example of what the salesman fallacy actually looks like. Humans follow models. When we don't have proper models to guide us in our behavior, we tend to fuck things up more than we probably should. Thankfully for us, there is one very good and very popular example of the current correct implementation of the salesman fallacy that we can all look to for reference. In the film Inception, a group of spies that engage in corporate espionage for the world's globalist business elite sell their services by going into people's dreams and stealing information for money. The crack team, led by Leonardo DiCaprio and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, is highly skilled and regarded for their ability to get things done and keep their influential and wealthy clients out of the shit while doing so. However, when the film begins, their most important client demands something, something that the team claims cannot be done. Inception. Inception, as defined by both the film itself and the title of the film, is the act of successfully implanting an idea in the mind of another person with the hope that they can run with this idea in the real world. Ideas, being the most powerful entity in existence, are remarkably valuable. In the hands of someone with capable competence and resources, they can be used as a weapon towards any and everyone who opposes that idea. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, however, explains why he believes this is so hard to do. To do excuse me. It's easy to take ideas from someone. You go in, you steal them, and go about your day. Planting an idea, however, is a totally different concept entirely. Genuine inspiration which is an emotional connection tied to an idea, is an almost impossible thing to fake. It has to be so natural, so ingrained in the person that you are, that you cannot possibly attempt to half-ass it. Therefore, 
The person that inception is being performed upon must believe that they came up with the idea themselves. If they cannot commit to the idea within their own head, the likelihood that they will carry this out to implementation in the real world will effectively drop to zero. Inception is so difficult because not only do you have to show that person an idea, but they themselves have to take that idea, appropriate that into actionable items in the real world, and then go about through all that work to implement the idea. If this is done successfully, however, the ripple effects will be massive. So, sound familiar? That one scene in Inception explained how to implement the salesman fallacy perfectly. The key with successful selling and successful Inception is the person you're selling to. Nothing happens without their buy-in and genuine desire to do what you want them to do. Unlike most things in the world, it's not just your responsibility to come to an agreement. It takes two to tango in this scenario, and that's if you're lucky. Unless you have the customer willingly walking into the alternative reality that you show them, your sales cycle will not be effective. There has to be buy-in from them. It cannot be a one-way conversation, because that's called force, remember? If you try to do the path of force, it could occasionally work, for sure. You could be incredibly successful with it on some occasions. But, as shown from other examples, it is far from an optimal long-range success strategy. A successful sales process cannot come from any outside noise or pressure. It must come from within. There must be something that happens inside of your customer that triggers them to walk alongside you as you guide them throughout the process. There must be an emotional and relatable connection made between your customer, whoever that is, and the alternate reality that you show them. If they deem your new, new reality you created to be lesser than the one they're currently in, odds are that they will not walk through the door and down the path to give you what you want. They will stay put because oftentimes, staying put is a much easier and much better alternative than trying, to, than trying something new. Your goal as the seller is twofold. Plant the seed and support the seed's growth into what you desire. You do not have to do the growing for the seed. You don't even have to put the seed in the ground. You need to tend to the land, make sure the soil is good, water the surrounding areas, make sure it gets enough light, and dig a hole deep enough for the seed to fall into. When it does, tend to it. You don't have to do the growing for the seed because that is an impossible thing to do. Only the seed can grow itself. However, there are ways to manage that growth so that the top resulting plant doesn't get fucked up on its way towards the top. You can make sure other items in the garden don't invade and corrupt the seed. You can shield it from harm. You can feed it. Your part in supporting the seed to an optimal end destination is what matters. You attempting to make the seed grow through force is a nonsensical and stupid way of going about gardening, as it is about convincing a customer to buy whatever it is you're selling to them. However, the biggest caveat and the hardest part of successful implementation of the usage of the salesman fallacy goes back to JGL's point. Throughout your process of selling, your customer cannot know that you are doing any work at all. They cannot know that you are working to try to influence them in doing what you want them to do. If they begin to catch on to this, their hair stands up. Something begins to seem off. They know that they're not coming to this conclusion organically, so they activate their sixth sense in an attempt to snuff it out. Instead, they must have the opportunity to take initiative and run with the idea themselves. The success of this hinges on two important attributes that any good seller has. Patience and trust. The seller must present the issue, but also allow his customer to fully grasp the idea that you want, to take a hold, that you want them to take a hold of at the pace where they will not be alienated. Additionally, 
The seller cannot be a control for you can dominate the selling process by either sending 100 follow-up emails or 100 unsolicited dick pics. Instead, he must be patient. He must wait. The customer, if the seed has been planted right, will eventually come to you and ask for help in assisting with its growth. And there is a reasoning behind this. There is a method to the madness. You should always try to control things and own them and put yourself in the driver's seat. You shouldn't try to do this so maliciously, but to say that you should just let things happen when you can control them and get better outcomes by influencing them personally is a ludicrous statement. The one thing that sellers drastically underestimate in the selling process is the one thing that could prove to be the greatest catalyst in getting the sellee to buy, or excuse me, getting the sellee to buy into whatever you're saying and confide in what you fully with their trust. Their ego. The ego of your customer must be fed as you go throughout the selling process because that is what you must nurture as you put on the guide hat and take them through the process of a successfully completed sales cycle. This is also where things begin to get dicey and people begin, begin to a little bit too subprime mortgagey for a lot of people's liking. But here's why stroking people's ego and that of your customer, no matter who they are, matters. People, no matter who they are, like to feel important. And since ideas are most, the most important thing that a person can possess, having your ideas validated is one of the strongest psychological responses you can feel inside of yourself. It's a dopamine hit that not many others can match, besides maybe smoking crack with McConaughey's hookers that he mentioned earlier. When people feel that their ideas are important and have validity, everything begins to lock into place. They begin to feel empowered. They feel inspired. They feel that they can be the ones to drive forward change and get the credit that could potentially come with it. The blood begins to pump a little extra hard in their veins. They see success and all the good things that can come with it. And they want it. God, do they want it. When the person you're selling to gets a hold of this feeling, the gentle stroke of the ego within themselves, their imagination begins to run wild. They feel an opportunity come upon them to impress people. They feel an opportunity to perform in whatever capacity the sales are taking place take place. They may feel that this is their big break, their time to shine. And who is holding this opportunity right in front of their face? You. You're the one thing that can, they can feel to help shoot that domain of their life into the stratosphere. You can help them finally land a girlfriend, or get a promotion, or get their ex-boyfriend to keep stalking them. They can sense it. They can feel that they're getting a deal. So your obligation to them is simple. Give them a deal. In doing this, you do something to the customer that so few salespeople fail to do time and time again. Empower them. When you truly empower someone, you allow them to claim their sovereignty and charge forward on their own path. They need no motivation. They need no five-point plan. All of that has been outsourced to them. You hardly have to do any selling at that point because at that point, you've already sold the most important thing, their desired end state of mind. At this point, you can most likely sit back, crack open a beer, and let them do all the work for you. When you occasionally have to spring from your chair, it will only be to help guide them back on the path you want them on when they occasionally stumble off of it. And at this point, all that remains is you and the finish line. Before you do anything, you must first begin with a desired end state. What does success look like? What is the feeling you're going to have? Which benefits, both tangible and intangible, will you reap? When you have all those things hammered out and inception plan in the mind of your customer, all you need to do is support their growth towards that desired end state until the sale is completed, no matter what that sale is. But needless to say, 
This is quite a bit of effort, even if you are hands-off for a good portion of the time in the selling process. To show you your desired end state of being in a selling mindset, let's take a look at what can come from a successful implementation of the salesman fallacy. Proper understanding of the salesman fallacy, as you can hopefully see by this point, is a remarkably powerful weapon that you can use throughout many domains in your life. In knowing the, psycholo the psychology excuse me, behind everyday selling, you have the advantage that most people don't and what truly drives people to do the things that they do. And to complement this ability, you also know when you are being sold to, so that you can be more informed and more insightfully engaged as to what can make the selling process better for you. Since the whole world is a sale, Knowing how you can both sell and be sold to is of the utmost importance. But this may seem tedious to some people. Why is it worth reframing your entire worldview to accommodate a new one, when the most people have never been remotely immersed into themselves? This is a very fair and important question to ask. The last thing you want to do is waste your time, particularly on something that would seem so foreign and out of place to most who take an outsider's perspective on the issue. But to sell, but I'm ching, you on this... There is one major fact that you must know when attempting to take on this cognitive reframing. Much like your customers, you can open an alternate reality on what could be. In selling a different vision to other people, you begin to sell a different vision to yourself as well. When you are able to effectively recognize the salesman fallacy, know how to discern the difference between proper next steps and move forward accordingly, you give yourself the tremendous opportunity of shaping your reality into whatever reality you wish it to be. This is an amazing power. One that so few think is accessible because so few people know that it exists. However, this is, as proven by successful sellers, a misguided assumption. You'll come to learn that the best people in their respective fields all have one thing in common. Nothing in the world is ever fixed. Nothing is ever set in stone. You can change your reality in most ways with simple changes in behavior and mindset. If they saw something they didn't like that served them or the people that they cared about, these successful people decided to flip the switch in their brains the salesman fallacy and put forth the proper diligence and effort to change it. All the best people at what they did throughout history, whose voices will continue to echo across the times forever, knew this and used it to their great advantage. Martin Luther King used the salesman fallacy to present Americans with what a reality without institutionalized racism would look like inside of America. The I Have a Dream speech is perhaps the greatest example of the salesman fallacy in existence. His vision, his sales ability, was so powerful that it changed the course of America forever. On a smaller scale, people like Jordan Peterson help people from all walks of life do this by forcing the people that listen to them to examine their lives and a better reality should they not be living up to their own expectations. In doing this, positive change can be felt for all who listen. On the flip side, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin were great salesmen who positioned, excuse me, an alternate reality of hellish proportions compared to what existed in their current time period. They painted a much darker version of the chaos that surrounded their countries and gave their citizens the hope that they so desperately craved by insidiously warping their hope around the singular definition of, of what they wanted the world to look like. They used the salesman fallacy to prey on people and to remove them from their innocence in order to corrupt them into doing what they wanted. As predatory sales professionals tend to do, they abused and manipulated their influence over people to reach a destination that only they wanted to reach. The effects of a complete and 
totalistic understanding of the salesman fallacy cannot be overstated. The people who are at their best have, quite literally, an opportunity to change the world. You, on most likely a smaller scale, have an opportunity to change many things about your life through the art of mastering salesmanship. I've seen this happen to numerous people that I've met through various circles, people who I personally thought were hopeless but ended up seeing the light. And perhaps the greatest example of this that I've seen comes from a recent introduction to my life in the form of an online community of men, and no, it's not QAnon. The Standard is a company created by podcaster Hafiz Bayoku and fashion designer Joseph Hines that creates suits and communities of men to aspire to achieve greater things in their lives. Seeing the current crisis of masculinity currently unway in America, the two men join forces with another and attempt to combat the decline of American masculinity by creating a Justice League-type branding strategy around men from across the world, coming together to aspire toward a better version of themselves for the future. The Standard, on its face, is a suit and community company. That's what its branding is. That's what all the social media feeds and YouTube videos are catered towards. That's what people who sign up to be a part of the Standard do. They either pay a membership fee or they buy a suit with a membership fee included. Every man, therefore, comes in with either a really good suit, of which quality I can attest to being indeed quality, and or a really kick-ass membership with a group of men going after the same things in life. That is their business model. But that doesn't mean that that's what they're selling. Remember the salesman fallacy. Any bad seller can push a product on someone without providing an alternative reality for the customer to step into. Put another way, there are lots of companies that sell suits. A lot of them sell very nice suits. There are a lot of people that offer up communities to different groups of people to help them connect together. A lot of them do this very well, just like QAnon did with the party they threw at the Capitol building earlier last year. Think how good sellers think. What are the benefits of the communities and the suits? What are they really trying to communicate to their potential customer base about the actual product? When you look at the things through the lens of value instead of raw products and services, you begin to see things much differently than before. You get to see the path that the seller is taking you down versus the one that they force you down at theoretical gunpoint. So, when you think of it through this lens, what is the standard actually selling? What are they really trying to communicate to their potential customer base about their actual product? When describing this business model to my mom, she put it in better words than I'd ever heard it described. The thing that the standard is selling is this. A country club. What the standard is actual selling, or actually selling, excuse me, is access, opulence, decadence, every word used in a Jay-Z song to describe the good life, basically. What they're selling is access to everything that men would want to ever want out of their lives. Women, money, wealth, status, whatever. The owners of the standard simply use the things that they sell, as all good sellers do, to sell an alternative reality, a destination to something else, which is the intangible benefit that no one can sell. This is what the standard sells, and it sells brilliantly. The thing is that, with all of this, whether it's the standard or anything else, the things that people sell have almost no correlation to the benefits that they provide. In the example of the standard, it's suits and communities. Are owning nice suits and being part of a good community beneficial to live what they're actually selling, the good life? They certainly can be. But do they have to be? They certainly don't. This is the path of many things that people sell and the actual reality of the sellers themselves should they choose to look at themselves with honest eyes. However, them fused together along with the correct understanding of the salesman fallacy creates something else entirely, something else that all the great sellers in the history of the world have successfully created across all domains, across all of time. Our beloved alternative reality.
That beloved alternative reality, in the case of the standard, a better life for men, one with limitless possibilities and potential if only they could reach them. And using the conduits of the good life, communities, and suits, all men who buy into the community have the opportunity to reach them. That is why the member of the company is growing quickly popular, and why so many members and friends of mine are actualizing levels of improvement and success in their lives they never thought were possible before entry into the community. If things keep at this pace, this self-fueling fire will keep burning brighter and hotter, with more communities and more suits providing men the self-selling sale that the standard hopes for, more opportunities for better, better lives for more and more men. It never stops moving, because good sellers know how to sell without placing their hands firmly on the wheel. Men want this because it gets them a better life, just as anyone who sells anything knows well that this is what they want. Instagram models sell fantasies via their social media profiles, bodies, and personalities. Cloud providers sell hope to all businesses hoping to flourish in the digital age. Recruiters sell the ability to provide to people who want to feed their families. The real selling, therefore, lies not within the tangible products, but in the intangible benefits of those products. So, if the whole world is a sale, that means the whole world has a whole lot of benefits. Those who understand good selling know this, and their lives read the benefits of that knowledge as a result. Proper salesmanship is the key to creating change within your life. Proper salesmanship, the creation of an alternative reality which will lead to your desired outcome, is framed by your mindset. That mindset, forged with intangible benefits and not tangible solutions, will allow your customers, whomever they may be, to be emboldened and empowered to take decisive action to improve their lives in situations they find themselves within. This, the proper understanding of the salesman fallacy in a value-driven environment, leads to enhanced prosperity, satisfaction, and success, both inside of the business and out, for all it takes its reins. Especially to all the nerds and virgins out there, greetings. Welcome to the good life. Okay, everybody, so that is how to sell anything ever in any context of any situation. So you're welcome. Go out and make millions of dollars. Do all your thing with it. But in all seriousness, guys, I think it's a really, really, it's a really valuable skill to have. I think salesmanship is truly, especially, and not because I work in it when I'm not doing this job, it's really, really an essential skill to have within yourself. And I truly wish that everyone can just at least listen to what I have to say, maybe take some bits and pieces out of it, apply it to your life, because I really think it can help you. So I wanted to share that. I thought it was cool. I hope you guys thought it was cool. So with that being said, own the day, open your mind. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll talk to you soon. See you later. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I make some grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?